Yes, Lord, we come to you this morning and we just still our hearts before you. We ask, Lord, that you would feed and nourish us in your word and that we would be changed. Amen. Hopefully the technology will uh, hold up for us. <laughs> um, so this morning we're continuing with 1 Timothy and we're in chapter 2 and we're in the section verses 8 to 15, which Keith has given the title Church, Men and Women. And I'm just going to read to you from the New Living Translation, which might be slightly different to your version, but keep, keep your passage in front of you. Verse 8. In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands, lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing golds, gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Verse 11, women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who, who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness and modesty. And then hopefully if things are working at the other end of our household, Rob's just going to screen share for you a PowerPoint slide, which just shows a map of how I'm going to go through this passage. So I'm not going in order. Uh, I'm going to, can you see the start here? I'm going to start with verse 11 onwards. And I've entitled that section, There is a Pattern and Order in All Creation. Then very briefly, I've put verse 15 as section two, which is about motherhood. And then to finally concentrate on section three, verses eight to 10, which I've entitled, entitled Worship is Inseparable from How We Live Our Everyday Life. So first, just briefly to the context of the passage, Paul is speaking with his authority as an apostle. His comments are addressed to all churches. The passage bears strong similarities to his teaching in 1 Corinthians 14 verses 26 to 38, which also addresses some matters of orderly worship and which includes addressing cultural issues of the time. However, as with the whole of scripture, there are principles that are consistent and pertinent to all cultures and all times. So firstly, to verse 12 then, uh, to address 
what would otherwise be the elephant in the room. Verse 12, I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. And I've put a verse 11 with that as well. So just to be absolutely clear, Freedom Church is part of Christ Central and upholds the biblical principle of male-only eldership. Presently, there is a wider church leadership team and the eldership team are in the under construction phase. Keith, as church planter, is functioning as an elder. As I speak today, I am not speaking in the function of an elder. Rather, it is under the authority and in submission to, firstly, my husband, Rob, and to Keith in his function as elder. And Rob and I have thrashed out the doctrinal underpinning for everything that I am saying this morning. It is not only appropriate, but necessary if I said anything contrary to their understanding of scripture, that it is corrected where appropriate. And if it weren't the case, my own conscience would not permit me to teach and speak in a whole church gathering. So moving on, Paul clearly had his reasoning for addressing the context of the day in verses 11 and 12, amongst which is the cultural context. In John MacArthur's commentary, he says, Paul is commanding that women be taught in the church. That was a novel concept since neither first century Judaism nor Greek culture held women in high esteem. But Paul's doctrinal framework that he uses to address this is very clear. There is a pattern and order in creation. And I just want to give you a heads up that talking about this and thinking about this will likely be difficult for our Western minds to accept in this day and age in which we live, particularly for us women. Let's look at how Paul uses his reasoning. He draws on Genesis, the beginning of the Bible. So in Genesis 1, remember, we see how God created the world. And he created many patterns and orders in the way that he created our planet. So we have light and darkness, day and night, waters and land. In Genesis 1 verse 16, we see he creates two lights, a greater light to govern the day and a lesser light to govern the night. And he creates creatures and plants to inhabit different places, each adapted to their habitat. Each has their place. Think now, for example, in the UK of the animal nightlife. Owls, foxes, those that hunt by night. Bats that come out at twilight. And 
maybe not so much at this time of year, but the dawn chorus, which is a wonderful sound through the spring and summer. And each part of creation has its role, its time, its purpose and season. And it functions best when it, it is living in the habitat that it was created for. All aspects of creation are valuable. Not one is worthless, but they're not all the same. And I just want to draw on um, some passages from uh, a book by A.W. Pink called The Sovereignty of God. It was written in 1928. I read this book in 2018 to really help me and challenge me. At the time our family was, it, things were difficult. I mean, you might get the impression that it's often difficult and that would be true. But in 2018, Morgan was particularly suffering. Our son who is profoundly disabled and suffers a great deal from pain from day to day. And I just felt like I needed help in navigating my understanding and worldview biblically. And so I read this book to enlarge my perspective. And Pink says, um, and it's really hard to read in places, that he, he well, sorry, in his day, his culture has become very man-centered. And that's what he says in the, in the beginning of the book. And he, he writes the book to kind of redress the balance and point people to God. And I found it hard to read, I guess, because I'm self-centered too. But it also helped me to understand my role and function and how God is in control. So I'm just going to read a, um, a bit from chapter four. Do you know, if I could, I'd read you the whole chapter <laughs> and uh, I'd really recommend reading the whole book. Um, so I've had to really restrain myself in choosing which bits to read. Um, but let's start off with just thinking about the planet, the planet Earth. And he says this, why should two thirds of its surrounding surface be covered with water? And why should so much of its remaining third be unfit for human cultivation or habitation? Why should there be vast stretches of marshes, deserts and ice fields? Why should one country be so inferior topographically to another? Why should one be fertile and another almost barren? Why should one be rich in minerals and another produce none? Why should the climate of one abound in rivers and lakes and another be almost devoid of them? Why should one be constantly troubled with earthquakes and another almost entirely free of them? Why? Because thus it pleased the creator and upholder of all things. And then I'm just going to move on to a section that he talks about uh, with the animal kingdom. And as you're reading this chapter, you, you know where he's going. You can feel he's starting big with the planet 
and he's moving down through creation nearer and nearer to us. So here's what he says about the animal kingdom. Some, like the horse and the dog, are gifted with great intelligence, while others, like sheep and swine, are almost devoid of it. Why? Some are designed to be beasts of burden, while others enjoy a life of freedom. Some are fit for food, others unfit. Some are beautiful, others ugly. Some are endowed with strength, others seem quite helpless. Some are fleet of foot, others can scarcely crawl. And I'll stop there. But the refrain throughout powerfully builds this picture of our sovereign God at work, forming and creating for his good pleasure, which is so helpful here in 1 Timothy because he also created man and woman to be different. So verse 13, for God made Adam first and afterward he made Eve. Why? Because it pleased him. God created man and then woman. This was before the fall. This was before imperfection had entered our relationships. He made us equal in value, but different in function. And then in 1 Timothy 2 verse 14, and it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived and sin was the result. Eve was deceived and she led Adam to disobey God. It was her influence. And this is uppermost in Paul's reasoning. Yes, likely there are cultural and contextual reasons for Paul to say what he does in verses 11 and 12. But as women, let's not miss the point here. Simply because we live in a culture that seeks to present women as the same as men. Paul is saying it's not only possible for women to be deceived and mislead men, he is emphasising that the fall of the whole of humanity hinged around this. Now, not addressed in this passage, but I'd just like to note, the Bible as a whole does not exclude women from positions of power and influence. Yes, there are examples of women in prominent positions, but Paul is addressing the order and pattern of creation here, that men and women are different in function. He is speaking into the church, which is comprised of family units, and the family unit has been under attack since back in Genesis attention that entered that very first relationship between Adam and Eve, attention that undermined the God-given authority of the man. So I'm just going to make a few points drawn from Wayne Grudem's book, Bible Doctrine, just to set out some pointers that I think will be helpful because this is difficult territory. And these points are around how God gave Adam 
authority that he chose not to give to Eve. Firstly, Eve was created as a helper for Adam. We see this in Genesis 2, verse 18. And Paul also quotes it in 1 Corinthians 11 to 9, when he says, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Secondly, we have the function of naming. He gave Adam authority to name the animals. He also gave Adam the authority to name Eve. So Adam calls her woman in Genesis 2.23. And later he calls her Eve in Genesis 3.20, when she becomes the mother of all things. Thirdly, God spoke to Adam first after the fall. This is in Genesis 3, verse 20. I found this one particularly helpful. I'd never noticed it before. That as leader of the family, Adam was the one called to account after they'd eaten of the fruit. And fourthly, and also very helpfully, because we're now into the New Testament, redemption in Christ reaffirms the created order. So in Colossians, we read, wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That's from Colossians 3, 18 to 19. And there are other passages that support this. Ephesians 5, verse 22 to 23. Also Titus chapter 2, verse 5. And 1 Peter 3, verses 1 to 7. So we are equal in value, but different in function. And this is hard for us culturally because we, in our culture now, associate function with value. We are used to hierarchies in our country. <sighs> so there is a pattern and order in all creation. There is also a pattern and order in the church and in marriage. And in Jesus, in the New Testament, we see a redeeming of what was lost through the fall, a right ordering. And that's a beautiful thing. I'm going to move on now just briefly to touch on verse 15, recognising that for some women, this will be a sensitive topic, especially those who long for biological motherhood. Though woman was deceived, God gives her the opportunity to mother and bring forth godly children. So in verse 15, we read, but women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness and modesty. 
The ESV commentary says this is a notoriously difficult to understand verse. Paul clearly does not believe that people can be saved in the sense of earning justification through childbearing or any other means. So this means don't read it literally. We know we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ, not by our effort or anything we do. MacArthur says, Paul is teaching that even though a woman bears the stigma of being the initial instrument who led the race into sin, it is women through childbearing who may be preserved or freed from that stigma by raising a generation of godly children. And now I'm going to move on to the final section, which you might remember from the beginning is to go to the start of the passage. And I've entitled it, Worship is Inseparable from How We Live Our Everyday Life. And here I've got a longer quote from John MacArthur's commentary, which Rob is going to put up for you. It says this, women in the church were living impure and self-centered lives. And that practice carried over into the worship service where they became distractions. Because of the centrality of worship in the life of the church, Paul calls on Timothy to confront the problem. Women in the first century often wove gold, pearls and other jewellery into their hairstyles, braided hair, to call attention to themselves and their wealth or beauty. The same was true of those women who wore costly clothing. By doing so, they would draw attention to themselves and away from the Lord, likely causing the poorer women to be envious. Paul's point was to forbid the preoccupation of certain women with flaunting their wealth and distracting people from worshipping the Lord. So in this section, I've just headed it. It's quite a short section. What does God want most of his people? And I realise that might sound quite a daring thing to say, <laughs> but I'm going off what the Bible says. And that is that throughout the Old Testament, it's particularly clear that the Bible sings out that God desires one thing of men and women. And that is their hearts. He wants our undivided worship, our attention above everything else. We see this in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, which is also quoted by Jesus in Matthew. Mark and Luke and he wants the same today. So let's get the gaze of our soul right and then everything else will fall into its correct place. Worship is inseparable 
from how we live our everyday life. We see this throughout scripture. So he wants men to pray in verse eight and to offer worship with purity and clean consciences. The same is true today. Um, I found this short Eugene Peterson quote. Um, it's from the Conversations edition of the Message Bible. I just thought it was great. Uh, that's about the whole chapter, chapter two. A changed world begins with us. And a changed us begins when we pray. The trouble then, and now, is that culture creeps into the church because we are immersed in our culture. Let's read verses 9 and 10 again. And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. So what are we preoccupied with? There's some points to note here from the passage. Though the passage does speak very plainly. Firstly, Paul is speaking to believers. So we see that in verse 10. Women who claim to be devoted to God. The same is true today. He's speaking to believing women. Secondly, women are to take responsibility for how they dress. Would these instructions from Paul be limited to church only? Or could they cover up in church and dress how they like the rest of the week? Hmm. Today, same thing applies. The whole Bible tells us that this applies to our whole life. God wants holiness and integrity. In our age, it applies to the way we present and conduct ourselves in our everyday lives. It includes the photographs you put on social media. It's not a popular thing to say in our culture now. But because our, our culture shuns responsibility. So if we say that seductive clothing attracts men, in our culture, it tends to say, you do what you want. And if other people have a problem with it, it's their problem. But the Bible points us to personal responsibility. Being considered attractive to a man, turning his head 
is a flattering thing to a woman. And I think I can say that as a woman, though I can't speak for all women, we have a radar for knowing when we are having that effect on a man. Men aren't the only ones with an ego. Thirdly, the symptoms here are women who are preoccupied with their appearance. So the symptoms might present differently today, but it's the same disease. So I've got two questions. What is the disease? And how do the symptoms present in our culture now? Before we lift the lid on that, let's just pause. What else does the Bible say? about beauty, just briefly. I'm not doing a comprehensive study. (laughs) There isn't time. Proverbs 31 verse 30 says, charm and grace are deceptive and beauty is vain because it is not lasting. But a woman who reverently and worshipfully fears the Lord is to be praised. From 1 Peter chapter 3, I'm reading from the Amplified This passage and I have been well acquainted since my early 20s. I absolutely love it. Let not yours be the merely external adorning with elaborate interweaving and knotting of the hair, the wearing of jewellery or changes of clothes. But let it be the inward adorning and beauty of the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible and unfading charm of a gentle and peaceful spirit, which is not anxious or wrought up, but is very precious in the sight of God. The most beautiful woman portrayed in the Bible, noted and praised for her external beauty, was Queen Esther. And she did prepare herself externally for the king. But in her heart, she carried the cry of the Jewish people. She fasted. She listened to her uncle's advice. She was an orphan and her uncle had raised her as his child. And her outward acts were courageous. She even risked her own life to save the Jewish people. And I just want to know, when we compliment each other, what are we reinforcing? Father, um, husbands to wives, fathers to daughters, each other to women in the church. I was always struck, um, I can't remember when it was, a couple of years ago, I think, Andy will remember, he once paid Hannah a compliment I've never forgotten it. I couldn't tell it you word for word, but I remember the impact of it on me. And I think he was preaching at the time and he was talking about having gone through tough times and how Hannah had really encouraged him to pray and to seek God. And he turned around and he said to the congregation something like, guys, that is so hot. 
So what are we reinforcing? Is it external things? Or is it who we are? And I just want to return to those two questions. Firstly, what is the disease? And secondly, how do the symptoms present in our culture today? Well, the disease, and I, I want to apologise because I'm British, but I also know that I shouldn't apologise for this. <laughs> the disease, it, it's uncomfortable, is our preoccupation with self, self-centeredness. It's like gravity, which pulls everything down to earth. Our old nature pulls everything down to being about us. Does this ring true if you look at our culture? Can we look at our culture and see a preoccupation with self? Can we see a fight against the harmony of what God created between men and women? I'm just going to mention another book. I read this one every few years. It's absolutely phenomenal. A.W. Tozer, The Pursuit of God. And in chapter three, so this was written in 1948. In chapter three, it's entitled Removing the Veil. And I'm just going to read the short quote. He talks about a veil across our hearts that hinders us from entering fully into worship and into God's power. He says this, so I am bold to name the threads out of which this inner veil is woven. It is woven of the fine threads of the self-life, the hyphenated sins of the human spirit. They are not something we do, they are something we are. And therein lies both their subtlety and their power. To be specific, the self sins are self righteousness, self pity, self confidence, self sufficiency, self admiration, self love, and a host of others like them. They dwell too deep within us and are too much a part of our natures to come to our attention till the light of God is focused upon them. We know that we are immersed in our culture and we know that our old nature is preoccupied with self. Today, I'm just noting three things about some of the presenting symptoms for women in particular in our culture. One, outward appearance counts. Two, youthful looks must be maintained. It's not okay to go gray, to get wrinkles. So fight back, cover it up dye your hair, buy this anti-aging cream, etc. This is what our culture is saying. And three, and this is much more subtle because it's an inward thing 
not an outward thing. It's closer to the disease of the soul than the symptoms. It's all about you. You need to feel good about yourself. Self-esteem. So what is the cure? Look upward. Look at him. Read your Bible. Spend time with the Lord. Esteem, that is respect, admire, esteem God. Inner beauty comes from spending time in his presence and being conformed into his likeness. And I'm going to suggest, and I know this is a challenge. It's not a magic wand. I suggest that as believing women, we could become the most secure women because of him. Women, we are to let nothing compete with loving Jesus and serving him. Outward beauty has its place. But it won't last. Youth will fade. Our bodies will one day die. But that which is Christ-like is eternal. So let your attractiveness be inward first. Gaze on Jesus. He is our first love. It's all about him. We're going to move into communion soon and I'm just going to finish with a quote from a book that I'm reading at the moment. It's called Constrained by His Love and it's a biography on Robert Murray McShane and he said this as he was serving communion in January 1840. Some of you are poring over your own heart, examining your feelings, watching your disease. Avert the eye from all within. Behold me, behold me. Christ cries, look to me and be ye saved. Behold the glory of Christ. There is much difficulty about your own heart, but no darkness about the heart of Christ. Look in through his wounds. Believe what you see in him.